Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies. I'm Daniel Friedrich, one of the hosts of the channel. What role do images play in the Enlightenment experience? Can Buddha images, calligraphy, mandalas, and portraits function as nodes of access for a practitioner's experience of enlightenment? Or are these visual representations a distraction from what ultimately matters? Pamela D. Winfield's recent award-winning monograph Icons and Iconoclasm, Kukai and Dogen on the Art of Enlightenment explores these major Japanese Buddhist figures' artistic and textual productions in order to answer these questions. Bringing together her expertise in the fields of art history and Buddhist studies, Winfield guides the reader to a more nuanced understanding of Kukai as a promoter of icons and Dogen's seemingly iconoclastic stance. In addition, she offers a model for bridging textual studies and studies of material cultures that opens paths for further explorations of the relationship of practice, text, and image. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, Pamela, and welcome to New Books in Buddhist Studies. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. All right. Um, so why don't we go ahead and let's just jump right into the interview here. Could you tell us, begin maybe by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to the study of Japanese Buddhism? Okay, um, so um, in my undergraduate um, studies at uh, Georgetown, actually, I was uh, I concentrated uh, completely, exclusively in Western European languages and, and art history, actually. I was a French and Italian double major, and I studied art history in France and in Italy, in French and in Italian. Um, and honestly, I thought I was going to be the next greatest um, 19th century French, French Impressionist curator until I realized that the world could probably do with one less 19th century French cur- uh, Impressionist curator. Um, after school, um, I, uh, like many, I think, who got their start in, in Japanese studies, uh, I taught English as a second language in Japan um, for uh, the first time, I think, uh, like two and a half years. Uh, first up in Sendai and then moved down to Kansai region and just had a wonderful experience. Um, the first time, and I, I got hooked, you know. I uh, When I was down uh, teaching at a, a Sacred Heart school, actually, uh, um, Seishin Joshi Gakuin, um, uh, Sacred Heart uh, Women's um, High School, um, down in, like, Takurasuka area, um, you know, I would just take the Kansai Time Out, that magazine, and they just have a list of all the matsuri and festivals that are going on every weekend, and I went just because that was where the 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 entertainment was, right? right? That was where the good cheap food and the good cheap beer and all the nigiyaka, you know, the lively atmosphere was. Um, and I, you know, I didn't understand at first what I was looking at, and so, um, you know, I started reading up, and the more you dig, the more you dig, and the more you want to dig and dig and dig, and I, I got hooked that way. Um, it came down, for me, it came down to whether I wanted to go um, back to school for religious studies or for art history. And in the end, um, 
I decided on religious studies. I am still interested. I have a very strong art history background. I had internships at Sotheby's and at the National Gallery of Art and at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where I was put in the Asian art department there as an intern. Um, uh, but I, um, I would... I didn't want to just study the who, what, where, where, and how of art. I wanted to get the more philosophical why, right? Mm-hmm. Why religious art in the first place? What are the kind of religious impulses that that uh, are behind these amazing, um, amazing accomplishments of, of human creativity? Um, and so, uh, yeah, I decided on religious studies for my for my PhD um, at Temple University. They gave me uh, um, a nice scholarship there. So went uh, and worked at Temple um, with uh, Shigenori Nagatomo. But then I also took art history classes uh, with Nancy Steinhardt at UPenn just down the street down the road in Philly. Um, and she very graciously um, uh, agreed to be on my committee. And so even though my my doctorate is in um, religious studies per se, I've always been able to do a very, uh, I've been lucky enough to do a very interdisciplinary um, uh, approach to religious studies, that is um, religious studies and art history kind of in symbiosis. Sure. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I, mean, we can, I think we can really see those, both of those interests, how they come out in your book and prep and in the, maybe the three framing questions okay. of, of the book, yes. um, I think you list them as do images help or hinder the realization of Buddhahood? Does the experience of awakening involve the imagination or not? And can art ever represent the experience of awakening itself? Mm-hmm. Um, I think in your back, perhaps your background really leads to the generation of those questions, but maybe you can say a little bit about how those questions came to be and how you came to focus on how Dogen and Kukai specifically respond to these questions. Right. Thank you. Um, yeah. So the, um, the genesis of those three questions, um, I think had probably been mulling around in my head throughout my whole graduate career, um, in various, um, various ways. Um, you know, papers on mandala visualization, um, papers on, uh, Dogen's kind of shinjin datsuraku, this idea of absolute sensation where there is no visualization, no, no, munen muso, right? No thought, no image. Um, so I, I was interested in various aspects of this, I think, for a long time. And the dissertation and then the rewrite, the complete rewrite of the book, um, was my vehicle really to kind of crystallize those questions for myself, um, and hopefully that might be of interest to other readers. Um, the I also um, am very interested in um, and took several courses on comparative mysticism. So the um, the role of experience, right, and how Buddhists themselves understood their enlightenment experiences, either you know, or. I should say, the place or the time of their enlightenment experiences also interested me greatly. And I wanted to try to bring um, the role of perception and imagery and um, visualization um, as it pertains to the enlightenment experience mm-hmm. itself uh, to bear in, this, in, in, my, in my writing, in my work, in my studies. Um, so how I got to those three kind of 
before, during, after questions, I think um, actually was a very long process. I would say at least a decade. You know, it, it had always been in my mind um, studying art history, but then also studying religious studies. And this is my attempt to bring these two camps really together. Um, and and they are camps, unfortunately, <laughs> still even in the academy, right? Um, from the 19th century German, um, you know, division of labor in the academy that religious studies scholars only deal with texts and philology, right? And thank goodness for that. We have amazing expertise, right? We've all benefited from it. From it. Um, and then art historians, on the other hand, only deal with images, um, you know, ideally as if monks weren't artists and artists weren't monks, right. you know. Um, so um, I, I perceived, I mean, my own work, I got frustrated with um, this kind of division of labor and um, am trying to bring um, them back together into their historical symbiosis really sure sure yeah maybe can you say a little bit about how um let's see how kukai and dogen maybe approach ah. um these kind of questions I, I think in the book you you have this great uh way of describing them as uh, unitive and purgative experiences Right. Thank you for keeping me back on track. So why Kuke and why Dogen? Uh, right. Um, so thank you. I chose these two kind of representative voices for and against the role of images in, in Awakening um, because of their their reputations, frankly. They're, they're perceived um, kind of almost stereotyped, but um, at least in sectarian scholarship, you know, Kukai is kind of held up as the, um, uh, the very pro-image, um, very elaborate symbol systems, right? This esoteric Buddhist um, kind of smells and bells Buddhism, right? The highly ritualistic, highly coded iconographic system on Kukai's side. And then on the other, I chose Dogen um, for his reputation as being, or Zen's reputation in general, of being, you know, at least minimalistic, at most iconoclastic, um, anti-image, at least in in its rhetoric, right? Right. Um, And what I then do um, in the book is I try to nuance these two um, uh, representative voices and show that actually Kukai empties his images out of substance and Dogen, in fact, actually does uh, hold a few Zen icons um, up as, as, you know, as worthy of veneration, really, um, such as the Shisho and whatnot, the transmission certificate. Um, So then, so that's why Kukai and Dogen um, now, I'm sorry, what, the second part of your question? Second, maybe a little bit about um, how each of them maybe understand images in, let's say, perhaps in your recovery here through this idea of the unitive and the purgative. Yes. Thank you. So then how their um, views on images pertain to experience. I argue in the book that Kukai... Um, exhibits a unitive model. The way he envisions his enlightenment experience is uh, what he calls kaji, right? Or what it's often translated as mutual empowerment. That is, there is a certain exchange or a certain um, divine union, you might say, or deity yoga in a sacred space or unobstructed space, really. He's, he's drawing on hua yen speciality here. Um, this kind of holographic space um, in which self and Buddha can unite. Uh, there's kind of a non-dual union in, in unobstructed space that goes on in Kukai's unitive model, 
right? Um, by contrast, Dogen's view or Dogen's time of awakening, uh, it's not as spatial. I, I argue that it's more temporal in nature. Um, Dogen's, is, uh, I characterize it as a purgative process um, of enlightenment that's, that is characterized by a threefold um, movement from the assertion of the self, such as you are, like right now from your starting point, to a radical negation of self in a moment of Shinjin Datsuraku, what he calls dropping off body-mind, right? Uh, kind of pulling the rug out from under yourself. There's absolute, what maybe um, Nishida Kitaro calls the place of absolute nothingness, right? Um, so that Shinjin Datsuraku, second m- movement. Um, and then from that um, radical negation, there is a third movement of uh, reassertion of form of, of self in the world, self in and as, but a part of the world, kind of a morgestalt, um, enlightened um, uh, realization of, of uh, one's intimate, um, you know, uh, place amongst all dharmas. Um, so that purgative process um, is uh, kind of harkens back to uh, Baba Viveka's uh, Majamika um, three-point movement, and uh, Malcolm David Eckel has written beautifully on that um, already. So um, I kind of uh, um, look to him. I also look to my own advisor who has characterized this as the logic of not, mm-hmm. right? The A, not A. A again, therefore A. Um, so that's that's Dogen's purgative process, um, as opposed to Kukai's uh, unitive model. Um, and so in my second chapter, actually, I, I kind of lay this out as Mikyo space, right. Zen time, right? Yes. Um, and, and talk about how um, both of those... Um, you know, visions of, of enlightenment or the places and times of enlightenment actually relate to imagery itself, right? right. And also to their foundation legends. Um, and we can see both Kukai, both the esoteric Buddhist, uh, as well as the Zen tradition, both look to the patriarch Nagarjuna <laughs> as their kind of first, at least human patriarch, right? Yeah. Um, but in the Mikyo, in the esoteric Buddhist context, um, Nagarjuna... Um, goes to an iron stupa in southern India and uh, obtains the esoteric sutras, right? The Vajrasukara and the Mahavarachana sutras in an iron tower. Uh, so there's an exchange there. There's, mm-hmm. there's that kind of bi-directional, reflexive, two-way reciprocation of enlightened wisdom in unobstructed space um, there in this kind of mythological tower in iron uh, in southern India. So that is indicative, I think, of that Kaji experience right. uh, that I outlined earlier. Mm-hmm. And so, too, in the, in the Zen tradition, um, Nagarjuna, again, um, it, the legend says that he goes, he starts, you know, up in the, the human realm, but he goes down, right, through the sea of conceptual dualisms, you might say, down... Uh, to the uh, Dragon King's Palace at the bottom of the ocean, obtains the Pradnyaparamita Sutras, the, the perfection of wisdom literature, and then reemerges again in that kind of three-point um, assertion, negation, and reaffirmation paradigm uh, or process that I've outlined there. Um, so I think even their foundation legends themselves are indicative of the Enlightenment experiences or how they characterize their own Enlightenment experiences. Yeah, so, I think... What's really interesting then is, you know, as moving on from those foundation legends, they both go back to 
both um, Kukai and Dogen and their traditions, then you, you make a very strong case for how they draw on the Kegon worldview yes. and, and their understanding of images. And you have this wonderful idea about um, Mikio as the analog uh, with analog imagery where the practitioner plugs in to the Kegon. Oh, I see. Yes, right. <laughs> yes, thank you. Okay. It's, it's such a great image. I loved this idea. <laughs> As opposed to Zen's GDK battery pack, right? Right, right. <laughs> That's right. So, so yes, I do use Kegon or Huayan Buddhism as the common denominator for analysis for bringing these two characters together in the first place. Um, there was a previous um, study, a comparative study of Kukai and Dogen back in uh, mid-80s, 1985, I think, was uh, David Shainer's Body-Mind Experience of, of in Japanese Buddhism. Um, and so this book is really kind of the first uh, since then to kind of bring their, their works together um, uh, in both text and image analysis. Um, but what I wanted to do differently than David Shainer was to actually look to within the Buddhist tradition itself for... Um, common denominators, right? Um, David Shainer's analysis uses phenomenology, you know, Western European continental philosophy as as his um, kind of methodological framing, uh, which is great. Uh, but I wanted to look within within Buddhism itself, and so I cho- I, I see Kegon or Huayan Buddhism as really um, what both Kukai and Dogen are drawing on in different ways, both in terms of their unobstructed space spatial metaphors or their unobstructed temporal metaphors and i use the words holographic and holochronic right, <laughs> right for kukai and dogen's mm-hmm. um dogen's uh paradigms um and then so yes in this unobstructed space for kukai um basically i i it may be a bit um uh, flippant or maybe i may have pushed the metaphor too far but i see the Three uh, ritual prongs of body, speech, and mind is kind of your your plug-in to Dainichi Buddha, the universal world Buddha of uh, infinite light, of light. I'm sorry, not Amida, but uh, the great light Buddha, Mahavairochana, or Dainichi Buddha. Um, and so through mantra, through mudra, through, um, yeah, mandalas or samaya, uh, visualizations um, through mind, you can you plug in uh, to this external external source or this projected idea of Buddhahood. Um, and there's actually even there are um, in the esoteric Buddhist uh, practice there are actually even um, mantra circulation visualizations where you where the practitioner imagines the mantra coming out of the mouth and entering into the Buddha who is pictured above you and then circling back down through your crown chakra and then back out and around. And so there's a loop, kind of a feedback loop between self and Buddha um, to facilitate this uh, deity yoga, really, this this non-dual union in, in unobstructed space. Um, in Dogen's holochronic model, I argue, um, you don't plug into anything external. It's jiriki, right? It's uh, it's self-power. So um, according to Dogen, if you just sit, right? Shikantaza, right? By just sitting, eventually in time, um, of its own accord, um, you will eventually just kind of drop off body-mind, right? This shinjin datsuraku. Um, and have the enlightenment experience that way. And that... Um, once you have that experience, um, the the way that um, Dogen understands um, his place, therefore, in uh, it's not so much a place 
it's not so much a place, it's a time. You are inserted into the Buddha time, right? right? And he actually shows this in, in the Soto Zen uh, transmission certificates, the, these shisho, they're called, um, where instead of kind of a linear lineage from master to disciple and so on and so on and so forth, rather, instead of drawing those lines vertically or even horizontally along a hand scroll, right, um, rather on the hanging scroll, he has every name of the, all the Buddhist patriarchs radiating around the Buddha's name in the center in a circle so that um, he says, actually, all the Buddhas and patriarchs are shoulder to shoulder with one another, kind of um, side by side, radiating around um, the central Buddha, Buddha name in the, in the middle, Buddha mind in the middle. And then furthermore, there's a um, actually connecting or linking all of these Buddha names around that circle. There's a, a red line that kind of weaves in and around each name, calligraphic, you know, written name. Um, uh, so that uh, it's a kechimyaku, right? It's a it's a blood li- it's a blood lineage, a surrogate bloodline um, that connects um, the Buddha, right, as the ultimate kind of great 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 grandfather of of all the Buddhas, right? Um, with around, and then Dogen inserts himself at the bottom of that transmission certificate as but the latest heir to to that Buddha mind, right? right? And ultimately connected with both the first and the last um, Buddhist patriarch, um, shoulder to shoulder with both of them in this kind of trans-historical, very cyclical, circular, non-linear idea of time. Right. Yeah. yeah. All right. Oh, boy, let's see. I feel like we're... It's a lot. I know. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> I find oh. it fascinating, but yeah, it's a lot. Let's see. Oh, yeah, I think that... One of, that's one of the interesting things here is this this idea of the of the enlightenment certificate as an image. Ah, yes. Right. That um, I feel. So maybe can you say a little bit more about that? I don't because I often think we don't think of the shiso as as an image as such. Good. Thank you. Yes. Um, I um, think. Okay. Yes. If you were to ask, um, and I have asked um, Soto Zen scholars in Japan, um, you know, about the Shisho, uh, first of all, it um, uh, was uh, not made public until very recently. It is a, it was a deeply held um, kind of an, in, uh, uh, an internal image um, that was um, really actually venerated within the Soto Zen um, um context for for centuries really right. it was held now there are some scholars art historians actually who question the um the whether it's authentic whether it's actually dogen what dogen brought back from china or if it's a medieval copy and there are you know um debates about that um but it functions if functionally it acts as an icon it is um dogen himself uh right it's about how he um, he sees uh, he goes to China and he views other shisho other transmission certificates and he his excitement at seeing them is almost akin to an art historian's you know um, idea of getting into a you know the the private collections or or a museum uh, collections that's not out on public display it's there's a certain um, um, power. 
mm-hmm. and um, authenticity and um, um, yeah, special nature to this. Yes, calligraphic um, written text that is mounted like you know on a kakemono on a on a hanging scroll um, that gets displayed only on special occasions. So it's it functions like an icon, and um, people bow before the shisho. So there is um, there is a uh, a sense of um, that this image this this. Um, visual object in and of itself um, has the kind of cachet, has the kind of power, has the kind of um, presence, really, almost as um, that's interchangeable with, um, for example, a, um, a Chinzo master portrait, um, right, that that Bob Sharp and other and Griff Folk have, have argued functions effectively like a double for a departed master. So these sorts of... Um, um, the investment and the kind of emotional um, valence that these shisho have is very akin to um, to an icon, right? To an image of enlightenment. It's a, it's like a piece of holiness, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> that um, that that they're engaging with here. Right. Um, it's not just picking up a book and, and reading the lineage, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's venerated as icons were venerated. Sure. Yeah. And, and I think too, one of the interesting things that one of the interesting moves you make in your book is when you when you're unpacking why Dogen chose this kind of image, this mm-hmm. shisho, rather than the paintings of the moon, right? Mm-hmm. Right. What a, a, a rice cake, I think, is what Dogen. Oh right, yes. yes. Uh huh. Right. So these. Can you maybe say a little bit about? Um, why Dogen maybe rejects these other kind of images that we might expect to see other Buddhist figures pointing towards. So. Right. So Dogen is hard to pin down right. um, <laughs> about anything, really. Um, and uh, the, the, his views on imagery are no different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you often have to consider who his audience was when and where he's speaking and whether he is speaking from a pre-enlightenment or a post-enlightenment perspective, right? So there are some times, um, for example, this example of Nagarjuna um, as the, uh, in Full Moon Samadhi, where he, uh, Dogen, so let me tell the little, can sure. I tell the story a little of bit? Yes, okay. please. <laughs> so one example when Dogen seems to denigrate or um, uh, deconstruct and, and has a very negative view of imagery mm-hmm. is when he is in China and he sees um, um, paintings on a Chinese temple wall of the of the Indian patriarchs, right of of the arhats, right. Mm-hmm. And so there's one image of just a big round white circle on a dharma seat, and he asks his Chinese guide, you know, who is this? And he is told, uh, this is Nagarjuna manifesting the full moon samadhi. And Dogen, you know, kind of um, rolls his he he. He thinks that this is ludicrous, that somebody literally interpreted Nagarjuna's full moon samadhi as a big white round circle that he actually transformed his body somehow into a moon, right? And he so he sees um, artistic representation as being um, totally deluded and delusional um, and, de- and, and deluding to, any, to the spectator. Um, 
And so he, he denigrates that. Um, at the, and he does this. Um, also, he's got an ulterior motive. He wants to kind of show off how much more enlightened he is even than his Chinese hosts, right? And Because he's coming back to right. Japan, and he wants to set up his own shop and demonstrate that he actually has enlightened wisdom. So he's, he's very, um, he critiques the, the, his Chinese hosts very, very severely. Um, and he says that um, this is nothing but the painting of a rice cake. You know, it looks like a yeah. bowl of you know, ball of mochi or something, you know? Um, and so it's absolutely ludicrous. Um, so that's one example when he is very um, negative about uh, imagery and, and how representation can never represents, can never represent, right, the Enlightenment experience, like a full moon samadhi experience. Um, there are other times, however, when he is very pro-image. And for this, it, his um, standpoint um, usually is, um, um, can be, uh, from a post-experiential, uh, you know, an enlightened perspective, when he says, you know, that all all images um, uh, are good, for example, and if you're just a novice starting out, obviously venerate the Buddha as but one of the three jewels, right? Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Um, so it really kind of depends who, where, and when he's speaking, like to whom he is speaking, mm-hmm. and why, and from what perspective he is speaking. Yeah. 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 Did I answer your question? Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's very fascinating. Um, let's see, so I want to go backwards a little bit now. We've kind of we jumped, we jumped ahead to the chapter on Dogen. Maybe let's ah. jump, move backwards to uh, a Kukai. Sure. And, um, let's see. All right. Now I have to read. Think how I want to ask this. Uh, let's see. Um, maybe. For, <laughs> could you maybe just start by saying a little bit about Kukai's take? On images, we've talked a little bit about the whole Mikyo uh, imagery, but maybe let's talk a little bit about Kukai and where images function within Mikyo practice. Of course. Kukai, as I said, has this reputation for being very pro-image. Mm-hmm. Um, at times he says um, you can get enlightened in a single glance at the two world mandalas, mm-hmm. for example. Um, and Cynthia Bogle has written a beautiful book with that, by that, uh, with that title, um, uh, from an art historical perspective. Um, and so, and he even says that the images, the two world mandalas that he brings back, specifically the womb world and the diamond world mandalas, which are always displayed as a pair, um, uh, that they kind of condense the Dharma better than even words can, mm-hmm. right? Um, so there's an interesting kind of text image, uh, a, a privileging of text of image over text there, which is, is interesting that I kind of play with when I compare it with Dogen later. Um, but, um, yeah, so Do- Kukai has this uh, very pro-image uh, take on, on um, the role of imagery in the Enlightenment experience. Um, and uh, in his ritual practice as well, he, he argues very convincingly that all the rituals up until now have been good, but they haven't been empowered by these esoteric images, and we really need to set up um, a Shingon chapel within the Imperial Palace itself, and he does this right before he he dies, so he really kind of gets um, uh, imperial. Pat- he he gets his imperial patronage for these images um, as being the most efficacious ways to empower 
um, you know, state protection, rain production, these sorts of um, esoteric rituals. Um, at the same time, however, in his poetry, Kukai deconstructs the power of images um, and that these mandalas, right, and mandalas are but two-dimensional blueprints for three-dimensional palaces, really. Um, but in his poetry, he deconstructs these as but castles in the air, right, that they are um, nothing but emptiness, etc. Et um, so he has um, certainly built up uh, a body of um, an of uh, iconography, a whole iconographic system, which obviously he inherits from the continent, um, um, and he literally grounds it in new soil. Right mm-hmm. in Japan, he he transplants this nice. this esoteric uh, system in terms of his stupas and his chapels and his uh, you know right in the capital itself. Right, um, so he's literally grounding it in in Japanese soil. Um, but at the same time, he does recognize that. These are um, empty, right? That these images um, uh, actually are, p- perhaps you might say, are efficacious because they are empty, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, but that yes, they they we should not attach too much to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but those are more in his private poetic moments, not so much in his public um, ritual agendas, really. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. When I think when you're talking about this public ritual agendas, you have this great term of uh, inter-iconicity. Ha, and, right. right and perhaps you would like to, might like to talk about that and how um, this citation of icons functions within um, Mikio practice. Very elaborately. Right. <laughs> um, so inter-iconicity um, is, yeah, perhaps my own neologism. I, I tend to like to do these things, like holochronic as well. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I like words um, as much as I like images. So inter-iconicity is um, my attempt, my way of characterizing what I think is going on or how I see the this mm-hmm. incredibly elaborate iconographic system within in esoteric Buddhism, within Mikyo. Um, and the sampling of one iconic element um, within a new context um, allows for a kind of a, um, oh, an express, a new kind of vocabulary, a visual vocabulary um, within which, with which Kukai can spell out new kind of ritual messages, you might say. Um, he actually has a very elaborate um, theory called, called Monji, M-O-N-J-I, or Mon, like um, Bun. Uh, so Monji is like a, a pattern letter, you might say, um, uh, that characterizes the entire world, really. So there's a, there's a kind of a consonance among sound, the word itself and the reality, the the referent, the actual material object or thing or event that is being represented through sound and, and word, um, and that that he lays out in his Shoji Jusogi um, Fasco, um, um, and so then building on that theory of Monji, he actually uses the visual vocabulary of the mandalas, um, which really kind of show or illustrate all the different aspects of Dainichi throughout the world in both compassionate as well as, um, you know, 
so lotus as well as vajra compassion as well as kind of um, adamantine wisdom uh, aspects and um, he will rearrange these figures um in different uh ways in different groupings um in order to yeah um uh, empower the space in different ways. So, for example, at Toji, a very famous temple in Kyoto, um, where that Kukai established, um, he uses uh, figures from the two world mandalas, but rearranges them in different ways to basically reflect the um, benevolence king's sutra in order to empower this... Um, um, urban ca- uh, temple in the capital in its uh, state-protecting role, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so uh, he, you have this kind of um, reservoir of images and meanings that you can recombine to re-spell <laughs> out new realities um, in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really kind of interesting, I find, um, in term- if you want to think of in terms of semiotics and things like this. Um, uh, Dogen, on the other hand, I, I kind of extend that metaphor even further, and if Kukai is going to have inter-iconicity, then I'm, I argue that Dogen has a sense of intertemporality right. as well. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's it's it's, it's quite fascinating the, yeah. the how they've both starting from kind of the same underlying tradition and developing mm. such different ways, and yet, right. um, I think one of the fascinating things about this book is you show that maybe they're not so different after all. <laughs> right? um, that perhaps maybe the difference has been overstated. I think by that division of labor. You've talked about um, the start of it, right? We start to see both Kukai and Dogen as more whole people, perhaps, than if we just... I think, yeah, I mean, ultimately, uh, first of all, I don't want to um, give the impression that and facilely reduce the one to the other and say, right. oh, yeah, they end up at the same place, and isn't that all like, <laughs> right. happy and easy and good? Mm-hmm. Um, because they are different. Right. Um, but at the same time... Um, I mean, because they are definitely, and they do definitely represent these two, I would say, complementary poles of mm-hmm. Buddhist thought uh, vis-a-vis imagery and experience. Um, at the same time, however, I, I liked, I would like to think, from my understanding, they, I think, both do end up at a place of non-dualism, right? right. Um, they just kind of come at it at, from different angles. So, mm-hmm. on, from Kukai's side, you might say that he comes at it pro-image, but then empties that out, Dogen comes at it from the emptiness side first and then reaffirms the form. Right. You know, so, um, yes, they're different, but I'm, I, I think their understanding, maybe, of the non-dualism of form and emptiness, um, also of practice or method and realization mm-hmm. and enlightenment, right, right. Um, are ultimately ultimately trying to get at the same place, just maybe through different different angles sure sure yeah yeah all right um well we've taken up quite a bit of your time so i think we'll we'll leave the um leave it to the reader to pick up your book and see how in the end you argue (laughs) dogen and kukai both respond to the three framing questions but maybe you'd like to say a little bit about um what you're working on right now ah 
Thank you. Okay. Uh, yes, I have. Um, I am co-editing um, a volume with uh, Zen scholar, senior Zen scholar Stephen Hine, uh, for Oxford on Zen and material culture, um, and this will bring religious studies scholars and art historians together in the same volume um, to look at the material and visual dimensions of uh, of Zen, both in or actually across uh, Rinzai, Soto, and we have Obaku as well. Oh, excellent. Um, yeah. Um, and uh, also um, uh, trans history, going from early medieval uh, actually up to the present, Greg Levine um, at uh, Berkeley, actually an artist, a great Zen art historian, mm-hmm. um, is going to be looking at retail Zen, oh, <laughs> right? And uh, so it's very, um, uh, I think, going to be a, a an interesting, interesting book. And then I have another, uh, I have a second idea for my second monograph, um, but I think it's too early to actually pitch that yet. I, I don't want to, <laughs> to, uh, to box myself in, but it would be something along the lines of, um, of temple bodies, but we'll, we'll see if that, how, how many, this book took me a long time. So we'll see how many years or decades it's going to take me for the second, but um, but yeah, no, I've got some some good projects in the coming down the pike. Right. Well, that excellent. It all sounds very exciting, and so we'll look forward to that uh, quoted volume with uh, Stephen Hine, and and yes. we'll I guess we'll keep checking back in to see what the second what form the second monograph takes. We'll see. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> all right, thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, thank you. <laughs> 